John chapter 3, we're going to read verses 16 through 21, and this is God's holy word for us this morning. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Will you pray with me? Father, again, we pause. And God, we have no authority in ourselves to ask anything, but because of Jesus and for your glory, I ask you, God, that you would fill us with your spirit through your word, that we might be able to hear and respond and glorify you. Please, God, do work only you could do. We ask it in Christ's holy name. Amen. And you can be seated. Question for you. Is the gospel simple or complicated? Yes, yes is the correct answer. Very good. If you study the Bible, you're going to learn that the answer really is both. There's a great deal of intricate study that can be done relating to the gospel. There is mystery for our little finite minds as to how God does everything that he does. You know, you can't explain everything about how God does what he does, even in, the, in salvation. But when we look at the gospel, the gospel that scripture communicates, the story and the call is also simple enough that a very small child can understand it. So this morning, I want us to finish this, which is the first discourse from Jesus on salvation in the gospel according to John. But as we wrap up the scene, we're going to find this morning five points, five things for you to write down. But let me first remind you of the context of the words that we'll study, because I wasn't here last week, and so you have a gap. At the end of John chapter 2, Jesus was in Jerusalem during the first Passover feast of his ministry. And while Jesus was in Jerusalem during that week, many people believed in Jesus, at least to a degree. They believed that Jesus was a powerful miracle worker. But Jesus knew that many of the people who were impressed by him did not have life-changing faith in him. And one example of a man impressed by Jesus, but not yet changed by Jesus, is Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a high-ranking religious teacher. He comes to Jesus by night for a conversation. And when he comes, he gets a lot more than he bargained for. Jesus lets Nicodemus know that no person can go to heaven. No person can even begin to see or understand real spiritual truth without God giving him or her new life. 
You must be born again, John 3, 3. And the second birth that we need is a thing that happens because of the secret, powerful, mysterious workings of God, like the wind blowing, John 3, 8. And Nicodemus, he cannot imagine how salvation can be about the mysterious working of God instead of the outward religious actions of people. But Jesus says to Nicodemus, Nick, you should have understood. You should have realized the prophetic promise of a new covenant from God is a promise of spiritual life that's about the heart not about ceremonial sacrifice, not about religious performance. In fact, Jesus shows Nicodemus that salvation is going to come to people by grace, through faith, just like the time in the book of Numbers when God commanded people to look at a bronze serpent on a pole that they might find healing from their snake bites. Whoever looks to Jesus will find life. With each successive step of the discourse so far, Jesus has been making the good news of how we can be more uh, God's children more and more clear. So let's finish it this morning and let's see reasons we should be praising God and ways that you and I can respond to God rightly. So five points. Are you ready? Come on, work with me here. There you go. Point number one, marvel at the extent of God's love. Point number one, marvel, meaning wonder, be amazed by, the extent of God's love. Take a look again at John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. It was two weeks ago on Resurrection Sunday when we looked very closely at this verse, and I think that was a good thing to do. After all, you can find a lot of truth, solid truth, in that verse. You can find a very beautiful, clear description of the gospel in that single verse standing off to itself. There's good reason why many people memorized John 3.16 first in their Bible studies as children. In John 3.16, we see that the gospel is primarily about God. We see that God has shown love. We see that God has loved who? Sinners from all nations. We see that those who have faith in Jesus do not perish. And we understand the corollary that those who do not have Jesus will perish. Did I say that wrong? Those who do not have faith in Jesus perish. Those who do have faith in Jesus will not perish. And we see in this verse the great, great reward, eternal life for those who have the forgiveness of God in Jesus Christ. But before we springboard off of this verse into the, the rest of the discourse, 17 to 21, I want us to one more time see one really important truth here. One cause that I believe if you'll get this today, it will make you praise I want you to think about the word so. Doesn't the word so make you want to praise? One of you does. Good. 
The rest of you went, I don't, I, I, I don't, I don't know, Pastor. I've never praised God over the word so before. God's telling us more than one thing as he says, for God so loved the world. God tells you how he loved the world, right? He loved the world in this way by bringing salvation through Jesus. And God is emphasizing for you to hear to what extent he has loved sinners. God loved the world so much that he chose to send Jesus. Jesus loved us so much that he chose to come to save us. Please don't miss the point just because it's simple. I'm going to ask you to think about this. Do you, individually, do you know Jesus? Are you a Christian? How many Christians in the room? Good. If you are a Christian, if you've come to Jesus in faith, I want you to settle in your heart this simple fact. God loves you. God has proved that he loves you. God has gone to an extent unimaginable to love you. God, by unified eternal plan between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, has chosen to crucify the Lord Jesus and allow him to suffer a punishment equal to eternity in hell for you so that you might come to the Lord and be embraced by the Lord as beloved and forgiven. Romans 5.8 says, But God shows his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God has shown his love. It is a done deal. Don't let yourself doubt the love of God if you've come to God through Christ. Never let yourself think that you can make God love you more. Christian, do you get that? You can't make God love you more? What, I mean, what would you do to make God love you more? Be better? Do you think God ever started loving you because of your goodness? No. But also, do not let yourself believe that you can make God love you less. God moved heaven and earth to love and save your soul. And that's because of who God is. So let me give you a little warning here. Be careful, Reformed folks. Got a whole lot of Reformed folks here, right? Be careful not to turn your nose up at love language. Some of us Reformed folks aren't good at the lovey stuff, are we? We like the judgment. Listen, I get it that in the modern church, there is a sort of squishy picture of a false god out there that people use that squishy picture so that they can just keep walking in sin. That is not what I'm talking about. That's not it. I'm not saying you have an excuse to keep sinning. But do me a favor. Do yourself a favor. Hear me. Do you know Jesus? If you do, God loves you. God has loved you. God will always love you. And that is good. Marvel at the extent of God's love. Let it comfort your heart. Let it give you hope. 
Let it wash over you and give you joy. In Christ, God loves you and has loved you to an extent that you cannot quantify. Do not wriggle out from under this because you like feeling bad. By the way, some of you like being miserable. I know because I know you. Stop that. Don't try to get out from under this because you think the church should be a harsher place. Do not fail to let this move you because you've seen other people take advantage of it, people who don't really follow Jesus. If we understand the sovereign electing grace of God, we should be those who rejoice most strongly in the God who has already moved heaven and earth to save his children. Let it make you wonder. Let it make you rejoice. Marvel at the extent of God's love. Now, let me give you one more reason to celebrate, to be grateful, to praise God. Point number two, thank God for his saving purpose. Thank God for his saving purpose. Look at verse 17. You tell me if this is good news. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Like that one? If the born-again thing was confusing to a man like Nicodemus, this from God about the purpose of Christ coming to earth, that would have shocked all the Jews. Jesus did not come first to condemn the world. He came to save people. Now, real quick, be sure that you know what the word world means when John uses it. The world is the collection of all people groups, not just the Jews. The world is the collection of sinful humanity. So world, when it's used here, it's not being used to talk about every individual individually. If you say everybody in the world's at Walmart today, guess what? They're not. It'll feel like it. Or if you go to Costco today, by the way, don't go to Costco today. But everybody in the world will be there, right? Now, you could say that and that's an okay sentence, but you know I'm not going to be there, so I'm not there and I'm a person in the world. But So the word, the word world doesn't mean every individual individually. Neither is the word world here being used to talk about the round globe, right? We're talking about all the peoples. Now, put yourself into the mindset of a man like Nicodemus. If Nicodemus did not grasp the promise of the new covenant, and we know he didn't, Nicodemus would have had a particular expectation of why God was going to send the Messiah into the world. Nicodemus expected that the promised king from God, that the Messiah was going to come to conquer, and he was going to come to punish, and, and he was going to come to lift the Jews up to power and squish their enemies and free them from all who would oppose them. This man thought Jesus was coming into the world, or the Messiah was coming into the world, to set the Jews over the world. Why? Well, look at the prophecies in Isaiah, because if you look there, you'll see promises of a king who does look like a judge and a world conqueror. In Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, the Bible says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace. There will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. 
Did you hear that? What is going to rest on the Messiah's shoulders? The government. The one to come is going to reign on David's throne forever. His, his kingdom is going to be established. It's going to be upheld with justice and righteousness. And that has to include judgment. Or listen to Isaiah 11, 1 through 5. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, listen to this, he shall judge the, pu the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he will kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. So listen to that. The Messiah, the King, the promised one from God, he's going to have wisdom. He's going to have strength. He's going to judge fairly. He's going to slay the wicked. He looks like a strong political ruler. He looks like a judge. He looks like a conquering, world-conquering king. And then Jesus says, I didn't come to judge. And that is astonishing. If Christ didn't come to judge, why did the Old Testament clearly depict the Messiah as a ruler and a judge? Is there a contradiction? Is there a conflict here? Well, if we know the Bible and we love the Bible, we know there's no contradiction here. What men like Nicodemus missed is that Messiah is coming into the world not once, but twice. There's a first and a second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus did not come into the world to judge it, at least not yet. Jesus had a different purpose for his first trip to earth. He came to save souls. He came to offer forgiveness. He came to purchase men for God by his blood. What if Jesus had come to judge? If Jesus had first come to judge without a first trip to earth for mercy, every last one of us would be under God's eternal wrath for our sins. We would go to hell. We would go straight to hell. We would not pass go. So thank God. Thank God that Jesus did not come first to judge. He came to save the world, not to carry out its condemnation. Now there will come a day there is still to come a day when Jesus will return to the earth. And when Jesus comes back, Jesus will judge. The glorious thing for you and me is that we are alive today during this time of mercy. We're alive during this time when God withholds his wrath and allows us to turn to Jesus Christ for forgiveness and for salvation. If you're a Christian, thank God that he withheld his wrath and brought you to saving faith in Christ. That is the grace of God. That's good. Thank God for his saving purpose. If you're a Christian, you should be prayerfully sharing that gracious love of Jesus with your friends, with your family, with your co-workers while there's still time for them to turn to Jesus too. And if you're hearing my voice and you are not a Christian, if you don't know what you think about God or if you oppose God or if you're not 
a believer in Jesus. Listen to me, your time is limited. God extends to you an offer of eternal life. He offers you salvation. He offers forgiveness of sins. He offers freedom from judgment. And he offers that to all who will come to him through faith in Jesus Christ. So I urge you, as the Bible commands all people everywhere, repent and believe in the Lord Jesus to be saved. I urge you to come to Jesus and receive the salvation offered by God. But then the question comes, how can anyone be saved? Look at point three, believe for salvation. Believe for salvation. John chapter three, verse 18 says, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Y'all, can I just say to you that verse is not complicated? There's not a simpler verse in all of Scripture to tell you who's going to heaven and who's going to hell. This verse is clear, it's plain, it's simple, it's unquestionable. You cannot read this verse fairly and logically and say, well, it might mean this, but it also might mean something else. You can't reasonably say, well, that's what it means to you, but not really to me. John 3.18 is way too straightforward for all that. God tells us that whoever believes in him, Jesus, is not condemned. He who believes in Jesus, she who believes in Jesus, is not judged. If you have faith in Jesus Christ as Savior, you will not suffer the judgment of God. You will not be condemned. No verdict will be read against you in the court of heaven. It is, it's not that you don't deserve to be condemned. It's that you're forgiven because of Jesus Christ and his perfect sacrifice. Now remember, when we talk about believing in Jesus... That belief is not empty. God is not saving people who, have, who give an intellectual assent to the fact that a man named Jesus existed. That's not saving faith. Saving faith is a trust in Jesus. Saving belief is entrusting your eternal soul to Jesus' care alone. Saving belief leads to a changed life. Believing in Jesus means that you let go of control of your life and surrender to Jesus. And because of who Jesus is and what he's done, you will rest all of your eternity in his hands, entrusting your soul to his care. And the point here in John 3.18 is that what frees anybody from the judgment of God, what frees anybody from the wrath of God is God's grace coming to us through faith, true faith in Jesus Christ. It's that simple. Now, is this, is this strange? Is this outside of God's pattern? Is the idea of salvation by grace through faith something that John is introducing to us for the very first time? No. Let me remind you of one of those landmark verses in the Old Testament. One of those verses that is of tremendous significance to biblical theology. In Genesis 15, verse 6, the Bible says, 
And he, that's Abram, believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. In that little verse, God and Abram, later Abraham, having a conversation. Abram is having trouble believing the promise of God that he would father a nation. I mean, Abram's getting kind of old and he and his wife aren't having any children and he's just having a hard time believing that a nation of people are going to come from him. But God keeps promising Abram and he says to Abram, you're going to have so many descendants, you're going to have so many who tie to your family tree that they'll be as uncountable as the stars in the night sky. And 15.6 in Genesis says Abram believed. He trusted that what God said was true. And the Bible tells us that Abram, when he believed God, God credited that belief to Abram as righteousness. Now, Abram was not in and of himself a perfectly righteous man, but God, by God's kindness, by God's grace, chose to count Abram as if he were righteous simply because Abram believed God's promise. That is salvation by God's grace alone through faith alone. It's only later, as God unfolds the story of Scripture for us, that's when we fully understand that the faith that saves a soul is God-given faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We read this morning Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. Don't even brag about your faith. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. In the other half of John 3.18, we have the corresponding truth. Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Who will be judged? According to the word, the person who doesn't believe. Why will they be judged? Well, the Bible just says here they'll be judged because they have not believed in God's only Son. All of us are sinners by birth and by action. But to sin against God and then to refuse God's command to come to Christ for grace is unforgivable. If you die refusing to come to Jesus Christ for grace, your sin is unforgivable. So if you were to ask me, Travis, will I go to heaven when I die? I would tell you, if you have truly put your faith in Jesus Christ, yes, you will go to heaven when you die. If not, you will not go to heaven when you die. And that's true for your family, your friends, your co-workers, your children. The way to heaven is absolute and is absolutely clear. If you believe in Jesus, you are not judged. If you do not believe in Jesus, you are judged and you cannot bear that judgment. And notice the tense of the judgment verb at the end of this verse. Whoever does not believe is judged already. If you sit here and you refuse to have faith in Christ, you are already sitting here under the condemnation of God. It's not mine. I'm not your judge. But the Bible says you sit under the condemnation of God. 
We've established God has a tremendous love. He's already proved that tremendous love. But until you receive the forgiveness of God in Christ, you are under the condemnation of God. You are, as Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3 says, a child of God's wrath. The judgment has already been rendered. It is already rendered because you are guilty of sinning before an infinitely holy God. God knows full well your eternal destiny. And if God doesn't save your soul, you will be lost forever for sinning against him. And if that frightens you, and it should, your only appropriate response is to run to God and cry out to Jesus, Lord Jesus, please have mercy on my soul and put your faith in Jesus to receive salvation. Anything less, anything less will result in your sentence of eternal destruction being carried out when you die or when Jesus comes back to judge. But, and this is the truly good news, Jesus has been saying all along, all who come to him in faith are saved. And what's the judgment for sin? The proper judgment for sin is hell. It is for a person to suffer an eternity of punishment, the outpoured fury of God's hatred for sin. You can't bear that punishment. I couldn't bear that punishment. So I urge you, Come to Jesus and find forgiveness. You might say, Travis, if it's that simple, why doesn't everybody come? I'll give you an answer. Point number four. The point is turn from darkness. Turn from darkness. Look at 19 and 20. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. In the book of John, we see contrasts regularly between groups, right? There's the people of God and there's the world. We see a contrast between the one with genuine faith and the one without genuine faith. And we see a contrast between the day and the night between the light and the darkness. And I don't think it requires a great deal of imagination to understand what's being said right here. People who do evil generally love to hide in the dark. Right? Anybody ever have a, a mama that told you, listen, I mean, you can go out, but there's not a good thing that happens after 11 p.m. anywhere. Anybody have something like that? And when you were growing up, nothing good happens after dark out there. Get back home. Thieves hide in shadow, don't they? Robbers along the roadways attack at night. Adulterers carry on affairs in dark rooms, hoping to avoid the eyes of others. And every time I think about this point, I think of an article that I found on Yahoo back in 2005. It's a long time ago, isn't it? How many of you weren't born in 2005? Yeah, I know, sorry. Well... It doesn't take long. The dateline is Brussels. It's a Reuters article. Quote, Antwerp will dim the bright new lights along the Belgian port city's waterfront after prostitutes complained they were putting off potential clients. Quote from the man here, We had some remarks from the prostitutes that there was too much light, both for them and the clients, city council spokesman John Verbeek said, 
we're investigating the possibility of lowering the light there. Prostitutes complained to city and police officials that the lights installed in December did not give them enough privacy and hurt business, he said. The port, which tolerates prostitutes in a select few streets near the waterfront, will next week test an electric system to dim the lights, Verbeek said. If the test gets the thumbs up from the city's sex workers, the system will be rolled out across the red light district, end quote. That's a Reuters article from 2005 entitled, Hookers Take a Dim View of Bright Lights. God's word says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. When we do evil, especially when we know we're doing evil, we want the light turned down. We don't want to be exposed. Most people, when they do evil, want to hide their evil. And there is an exception. The Bible, reading through Isaiah, God compares Israel to Sodom and Gomorrah. And speaking of Sodom and Gomorrah, the Lord said they loved to expose their wickedness. Our society right now is trying to challenge this concept because in America, people are eagerly exposing their sin, gathered in groups, shouting with pride over their willingness to defy the order of the creation of the Almighty. People flaunt sin. But the truth remains, when it comes to the genuine light of God, when a person sees himself or herself in the light of the Almighty, when they see their sin, when they see God's holiness, they will respond to God in one of two ways. And one of the ways, one of the ways that people respond is they try to run away from God and they try to hide from God. They believe foolishly that darkness can somehow cover their sin and keep them away from the judgment of God. Listen to this prophetic scene predicting mankind thinking he can hide from the wrath of God in Revelation 6, 12 and following. It says, when he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth and the full moon became dark like blood and the, skies of the, the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. Judgment's coming. It says, the sky vanished like a scroll being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Now listen to this. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? People who are unwilling to come to God who are unwilling to turn from sin, who are unwilling to submit to Jesus Christ as Lord, will always seek to hide themselves from the Lord when they are confronted by His holiness. Because the holiness of God is terrifying, terrifying to a sinful human being. 
When Isaiah saw the Lord seated upon his throne, he feared that he would disintegrate, that he would fall to pieces because of his standing as a sinner before God. But you and I need to know is it is our sinful human nature to attempt to hide ourselves and our sins in darkness so that we won't be exposed. But we must understand if we want life, we can't hide in the darkness. We need to make the other choice. We, even dirty sinners like us, must run to the light. Point number five, come to the light for God's glory. Verse 21, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Whoever does what is true, that's whoever comes to the light. Who's that? It's a saved person. It's the person who no longer foolishly hides in a veil of darkness, but who has come to God, confessed his sin to God, and received the forgiveness of God by the grace of Jesus Christ. And the saved person, the life that they live after they're saved, their deeds, all of the good things that you might do, all the righteous things you might do, they are shown, they are clearly displayed as coming from God. Our salvation, do you get this? Do you, do you really understand this? Your salvation is God's story, not yours. Like, you're a character, but it's God's story, even your salvation. All the good that we ever will do, anything good, even the good of having faith and coming to Christ is good that was carried out in God. God forms, shapes, and brings to pass any good you do and any good you become. We don't take even 1% credit for the good that comes out of us because all of our good is done in God, by God's grace, for God's glory. And once a person comes to Jesus for salvation, that person is going to find that he or she has been changed by God. Salvation will necessarily result in us doing good works. And those good works are to the glory of God because they're carried out in God. I would remind you, God calls on all people everywhere to repent and believe in Jesus for life. Are you hiding from God? Are you running away from God? Jesus invites you, come. Come to the light. Come to the Lord Jesus and find salvation there. And if you have Jesus, how do we return to the Lord the glory for the good that's in us? What acts, what acts can you do? that will show the Lord that Jesus Christ is your number one priority. That question needs to ring in your ears. What can I do with my life today that will show the universe that Jesus Christ is number one? Friends, this is where we remember it honors Jesus for you to gather here for worship. It honors Jesus when you turn away from sin day after day. It honors Jesus when you sing, even if singing is not your thing. It honors Jesus when we do that which pleases the Lord as the Lord has spelled out in his commands. Let the world see your good works and let it glorify your Father who is in heaven. 
I'll ask again, is the gospel simple or complicated? Well, Jesus came to earth to offer us mercy. He will come back one day, and then it's going to be time for judgment. Many people refuse to come to Jesus, and the Bible says that this is because of their evil deeds. Some do come to him, and it results in good deeds carried out in God. Bottom line is verse 18 today. Whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned. Whoever does not believe is condemned already. Which one are you? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for Jesus. I thank you, God, for life. Lord, please help us. Right now, there are people in this room who need to run to Jesus for life. I plead with you, Lord, that you would, in fact, draw them to yourself, that they may have life. And Lord, there are people in this room who have Jesus, but who need to live to his glory and be thankful for the unquestionable love that you've shown. Help them to be in awe of your great grace from their simple gospel. Let us love you, Lord. Let us magnify you. Let us take the gospel to the nations. Make us faithful, God, I pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen.